Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the September 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. My name is Christian Cisan. I'm your host today. And this has been a very, very crazy, crazy setup here because uh, I'm so used to doing it in a very, uh, I guess you would call it a low budget style podcast. Uh, I actually have heard uh, the recordings to see if this would be good. And this month's episode is now getting a bump up with the help of, uh, I, I guess, the brain trust of Lois Law Firm. Uh, seeing me walk around it with the microphone and a laptop has prompted all the powers that be to give me all the best equipment and spend 30 minutes to set me up here nicely. Uh, and, and why not? We have a great, great topic today, and I have two of the most talented attorneys in our firm here today. Uh, Addison O'Donnell and Chris Major, welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks as always. You know, I love being on this podcast more than anything. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, uh, Chris, how how much are you keeping track of who's been the who has had the most guest appearances on the show? Uh, my understanding is that I hold that title exclusively. But if there is another contender, I would like to know sooner than later. <laughs> right, he's going to put in for more more topics to be discussed. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty good, probably because uh, you're so great at everything, Chris. Uh, but <laughs> we're here to talk about uh, an appellate division case that was issued, or the opinion was issued in February of this year. And typically, we're so ensconced in how this affects our practice and all these opinions. Uh, you know, the appeals bureau, bureau headed up by Addison uh, is very, very aggressive in getting the news to the rest of the firm to make sure that we're giving the best updates and the best feedback to our clients. And this decision doesn't really do that per se, but it's so interesting that uh, we almost were yelling at each other this morning for, for a few hours. Not not like, like a friendly yell, just like uh, posturing over all the potential situations that could happen, right? We get quite passionate about workers' compensation. <laughs> right, right. And uh, Addison, I, I, I messaged you very early this morning to see if you'd want to do this. And you said, let's bring, let's bring Chris Major into this too because, you know, let's just uh, increase uh, the brain power uh, in the room. Yeah, there right? might, and there might be third party implications, you know, Chris. Brings yeah. And, and let the record reflect that I was invited and for once did not insist upon myself. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> right. So it's like keeping that tally of podcast appearances up for honest, good faith reasons. So uh, the case for everybody is uh Temperio versus Bronx Lebanon hospital. Uh, and let's just take a moment to cite or, or to recite the fact pattern that the appellate division uh, gives us. I'm going to go almost word for word here. On June 30th, 2017, Henry Bello, a physician who had worked for the Bronx Lebanon Hospital from August 2014 until his resignation in February 2015, following an allegation that he had sexually harassed a hospital employee, entered the hospital wearing a white doctor's coat and a hospital identification badge, 
and carrying, among other things, wait for it, a loaded AR-15 rifle. Now, in addition to setting fire to the hospital's 16th floor nursing station using a juice container filled with gasoline, what? A juice container filled with gasoline, Bello shot Justin Timperio, who was a first-year medical resident at that time, shot and killed another doctor and shot and wounded four other members of the medical staff in addition to a patient. Timperio was shot in the abdomen and the bullet exited his right thigh, requiring a hospital admission, surgical procedures, and treatment. After the mass shooting, Bello shot and killed himself. So forget about everything that we're going to talk about for just a second and reactions to that fact pattern go. Well, I, my quick reaction is that there's a footnote that says Bello never worked with Temperio and they had no prior knowledge of one another. So uh, Henry Bello went postal and, you know, it is it is actually quite tragic because, you know, we have we have issued, you know, issues with with uh, security here. We have there, there's a lot going on here and it's a hospital. So, you know, there's a lot of eyes looking at this. I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm surprised, and, you know, but, you know, and I'm sort of depressed about this, but how about you, Chris? Well, I'm, I'm thankful Addison O'Donnell is offering the humanitarian um, viewpoint of this because, you know, the, the, the civil attorney brain in me goes, well, wait a sec, the guy shot and killed himself? Who's the claimant going to sue then? Um, but, <laughs> you know, oh my god uh, other than of course their employer but that takes us to the uh to the crux of this very case unless i'm unless i'm mistaken christian yeah so you know you have a situation that's so <clears throat> explosive right and it turns out that we have multiple jurisdictions at play here so uh what happened, I guess, from Timperio's point of view? What did he decide to do as a result of this? Well, in uh, the following year, Timperio filed a suit against Bronx Lebanon Hospital, alleging negligence, uh, negligent infliction of emotional distress, NIED, uh, negligent hiring, training, retention, and supervision. And, so, and I would just I would just say let's file those causes of action away in our cap for later because they're they're quite relevant. But I'm sorry to cut you off, no, Addison. Did, no, did you good. hear that, listeners? File it away in your cap for later. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Foreshadowing. So, right. I was actually saying the foreshadowing was really also the footnote that Addison talked about as yes, well, right? Absolutely. So he files a uh, federal suit, right, and. Uh, on the workers' compensation side, what happens? Well, I mean, meanwhile, on the comp side, about six months, seven months before, the carrier uh, filed a first report of injury, sometimes called a FROI. I, per, I, you know, I prefer calling it a FOI, make, <laughs> make it the French, make it classy, but file a FROI form, which essentially indicates that the uh, that there was a purported work-related incident of sorts, and in this case, that a former employee had shot Timperia while Timperia was performing his work duties, and that the injuries required uh, emergency surgery. So, so they they're reporting to the board that this happened. Uh, 
you know, who knows what's on that FOIA? Are they, are they saying they're accepting the claim? Uh, are they just reporting it? We don't know that. But it gets to the point of a hearing which purportedly results in the carrier's representative saying, we're accepting the claim, right? So Chris, like, what what would that mean? Just that, that sentence alone, what would that mean for the claimant's federal lawsuit? So if the carrier is accepting the claim? If the carrier is accepting the claim in the workers' compensation court, what would that mean for the claimant's federal lawsuit? Well, so Section 11 and Section 29.6, and 29.6 extends the protections of Section 11 to uh, co-workers and basically everyone else in the employer chain, including the carrier. Um, Section 11 and 29.6 bar suits against the employer once comp is elected as the quote-unquote exclusive remedy. So you might have heard this referred to uh, as workers' comp exclusivity as a concept. But basically, you know, the policy rationale behind it is that once a claimant elects to receive workers' compensation benefits, which are effectively a form of no-fault benefits, right? That's the classic trade-off. You know, the guaranteed benefits you get from a work-related injury, you know, bars your ability to sue your employer, and that's sort of the bargain that everyone makes, right? Your the employer's damages are limited to comp, and the uh, employee cannot sue the employer civilly. So once the case is accepted or established, um, the civil action in federal court, I mean, realistically should be dead on its face due to section 11 and 29, six. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's almost, would you say it's like a strategic move to accept liability on the workers compensation side to avoid, or, or really to apply that exclusivity rule and avoid what could potentially be much higher exposure on the federal side, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the federal mm. case was barred, right, this is, first of all, the federal court is, is different than the uh, state court. In federal court, you need to prove a certain threshold of damages in order just to, just to say that you have the jurisdiction to go, right? I, I mean, Chris and I can discuss diversity of citizenship uh, jurisdiction until the cows Ooh, come Civ home. Civ Pro, law know. school. One of my faves. So, but that being said, you know, uh, in on the workers' compensation side, you know, you could do the financial calculus and say that the estate of the decedent can only receive a certain amount given the maximum, you know, statutory benefit rate and, you know, what's, what's going on here, you know, if there's survivors versus the jury verdict, you know, amongst a jury of, of our peers in federal court, you know, Southern District of New York, um, that could render, you know, millions of dollars in damages, you know. And so so here's the really interesting thing that um, Addison's touching upon from, you know, an, a coverage perspective. So you might hear comp referred to as part A, uh, and the workers' comp policy is written um, with two different types of coverage uh, in every single policy, part A, workers' comp, part B, employer's liability. Now, what's interesting about the way the New York workers' comp law is worded is that theoretically, comp is unlimited, right? There's there's nothing that says, you know, um, there's a maximum amount of indemnity benefits that can be paid on a claim. But like Addison said, you know, there are statutory caps for weekly benefit rates and, you know, there are different mechanisms an employer can wield to lower their exposure. But the entitlement to comp is theoretically unlimited. And so what happens is if you trigger this employer's liability coverage and have this 
what is effectively a claim against your employer similar to workers' comp, but outside of the workers' comp policy itself, you don't get to avail yourself of those protections, you know, limiting indemnity benefits to the statutory max per week uh, and any other protections we would have. So you have this theoretically unlimited pool of coverage that, as Addison correctly mentioned, is going to be left to a jury to decide. And that's where you start to get into this realm of millions of dollars in terms of jury verdicts where, you know, everyone on this podcast knows that, you know, realistically your comp exposure is never going to come anywhere near that. So that's that's the really interesting thing from just a, a coverage perspective is the potential implication of the Part B employer's liability policy if this falls outside of the Part A. Yeah, and so the federal court uh, case moves to a summary judgment motion, right, brought by the hospital to essentially say this is a work accident because we, we know from the appellate division decision is that motion was denied where the federal court says that there's no nexus, there's nothing connected to employment or work here. And so that kind of juxtaposed against what goes on in the hearings in the workers' compensation case where the judge is hearing from the insurance company's attorney and says, okay, you're accepting liability that it's a workers' compensation uh, case. It's, it's an accident that's compensable in the workers' compensation law. I'm agreeing with you. I'm going to establish it. I'm awarding benefits for whatever you've paid, so on and so forth. And the claimant appeals, right? The claimant appeals that. In the most unlikely situation uh, for your normal case, a claimant is not going to appeal an established case. And also, a carrier is not going to willingly accept compensability for an accident where it's very clearly at least triable to the to the notion that this gunshot wound or this event has no connection to the course and scope of Mr. Temperio's employment. That is so wild and radical. You have the claimant saying, no, this is not a workers' compensation claim, and the carrier saying, yes, it is. I want to pay you in the workers' compensation arena. Guys, I mean, how how crazy is that? I I'm still shocked about it, and the reason why is because there seems to be a very interesting, nuanced um, issue that I could foresee. The first is, is when a carrier's attorney goes into the comp court, the carrier's attorney is not just representing the carrier, right? It's the carrier and the employer. And so maybe the employer is the same in the federal case. And in this case, that's the, that's the case, right? The Bronx and Lebanon Hospital uh, is in the federal case and is being repped here. But at the same time, the workers' compensation carrier here is not involved with that federal case, which might, you know, unless there's, you know, some communication that confirmed the strategy here on, on behalf of the carrier, this is highly unusual. This is, this is very rare. And a claimant arguing that the case should be disallowed, that the workers' compensation uh, court is not the proper forum here. And uh, under, honestly, from what I can read from, from this public document, it's under the theory that the claimant did not prosecute the case. 
but the case was just automatically generated given the FROI, given the uh, subsequent indexing. So initially, I'm I'm just shocked. I'm still speechless about this. What about you, Chris? I it it really is quite fascinating for for a number of reasons. So you know we mentioned section twenty nine six and section eleven and the concept of comp exclusivity. So you you know you'll notice in this opinion that it says motion practice uh, ensued and the hospital's motion for summary judgment, which if I were in their shoes, I would have done the exact same thing in the civil case, right? Which is an immediate motion for summary judgment on the grounds of comp exclusivity. So that motion gets denied by the federal court because they make a finding um, that the injuries did not arise out of and in the course of employment. And any um, comp attorney or, or comp professional worth their salt, alarm bells are immediately ringing that there's that there's a civil court somewhere out there adjudicating the issue of whether an injury was work-related, which we all know, and we've seen time and time again in every conceivable arena, that the Workers' Compensation Board has continuing, exclusive, and primary jurisdiction over any of these issues. And we've seen that, you know, in a number of different contexts, including, you know, Section 29 lien waivers or uh, claims for no-fault benefits. I mean, we could go over all the ways this could pop up. But then conversely, we have a claimant who's saying, no, 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 I swear this didn't have anything to do with my employment at all because of what Addison and I were talking about earlier in this podcast, which is the civil jury verdict is potentially so much more, so much more. Uh, but then you have the board saying, yes, it is work-related because, you know, Section 21 and that, you know, board's going to do what board's going to do. Everything's compensable, right? Uh, and then the third department goes, no, we, we agree with the federal court. Turns out it's not work-related. So it's just this it's this very strange interaction of, you know, conflicting viewpoints that overlaps with uh, the concept of exclusive jurisdiction for the board. Yeah, it's 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 a situation where the federal court is making a finding and the 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 board or I guess from law judge to board panel, right? The carrier is going to be arguing that uh, they the federal court's finding doesn't stop them from accepting jurisdiction, right? And and the board agrees, right? The right. board says that uh, there's no uh, estoppel or collateral estoppel uh, concept from federal action to workers' compensation board. And I know, Chris, uh, you you mentioned uh, in discussing this with me earlier the uh, proposed legislation at the feet of our governor in New York. Uh, oh boy, you want you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so the latest in a string of um, hateful, uh, uncarrier, unemployer-friendly um, legislation, just this continued um, war against our ability to defend cases and and limit exposure in the state of New York. So um, this legislation has actually already passed the Senate and Assembly. It's from May 2022. Um, and now it's just uh, awaiting delivery to the governor to sign or veto. But uh, it's a very quick blurb. They're looking to add Section 118A to the workers' comp law, uh, effective findings and determinations in subsequent proceedings. With respect to an action for a workers' compensation claim permissible under this chapter, no finding or decision by the workers' compensation board, judge, or other arbiter shall be given collateral estoppel effect in any other action or proceeding arising out of the same occurrence 
other than the determination of the existence of an employer-employee relationship. So, you know, um, immediately when this legislation was proposed, me and um, Tashia Rasul, who uh, everyone knows leads up our uh, construction practice here at Lois, um, you know, we were immediately processing the implications of this. And there's a number of things you can do on the civil side based on comp findings. For instance, if we successfully litigate that a certain injury, you know, maybe like a consequential ankle to a knee claim, right? If we successfully litigate that that's not causally related, and then in a labor law claim, you know, where the employer is also being sued civilly, uh, the claimant tries to tack on that ankle injury uh, as part of their alleged damages in the civil claim, and maybe they include it in their bill of particulars, you know, we can hang up that, that finding from the board of no causal relationship and argue collateral estoppel and avoid having that included as part of the civil injuries. Um, and the implications are more far reaching than that. For instance, you know, if the board adjudicates that, you know, this is not a work related injury at all, or better yet, that the injury never happened, right? The claimant's a fraud. We have surveillance showing him just standing there as the truck rolls past him and nothing ever happens, right? That finding that the injury never happened at all that's an immediate basis for, for a summary judgment motion if a civil action is filed, even in a labor law claim. But what this is saying is you can't hang your hat on anything the board finds except for employer-employee relationship. And that is just so wildly prejudicial to you know an employer or a carrier's defense efforts that, quite frankly, it, it boggles the mind and gets the blood boiling, at, at least for, you know, we carrier attorneys, right? Right. I do, I do feel that, you know, somebody, there's like maybe like a voodoo doll or a, like a dartboard somewhere where it's like, uh, how can you make it more difficult? And let's just throw the dart and see where it lands and um, create some legislation with, with the lobbyists from our, our opposition. But I, I say bring it on. I, I, I kind of like being... Uh, you know, uh, having the hardest challenge here. If you're going to create all these uh, statutes to try and make it harder for us, well, it's just going to give us more opportunities to be uh, bigger winners. Uh, it's going to hurt so so bad for the other side when we do win those cases against them. But uh, very good rendition there, Chris. I think, you know, in here, it's almost like a two-way estoppel street where, uh, you know, the appellate division is agreeing that there's no estoppel here, but they're finding that there's no accident and injury arising out of and in the course of employment. And I, I know Addison, you'll get a kick of this statement just as a, as an appellate uh, genius here, right? I, I love reading this sentence here. The mixed question of fact and law that is raised concerning whether Temperio sustained a, uh, an injury arising out of and in the course of his employment is unquestionably a matter for the board to decide in the first instance. I mean, it's just like setting setting yourself up. You, know, you imagine like reading a book, like any kind of book, and then you, you read something and you're like, I can't wait to read the next five pages. Mm -hmm. Like that's how I felt when I read that sentence. I mean, and you know, this goes to what Chris had just said, right? The idea that collateral estoppel is on the chopping block for the comp courts. And then you read something like this where the appellate division uh, cites not just a plethora of case law in which collateral estoppel has been used before, but that the mixed f question of fact and law is raised, whether an injury was sustained arising out of and in the course of employment. I mean, I'm, I, I just have to say, can the legislature even legislate on throwing out a justiciable 
uh, you know, concept, right? Like this is this is something that I that gets my blood boiling is that the legislature can't just overrule, overthrow case precedent just because uh, you know uh, it's not advantageous to a certain party who might potentially wind up in the court. That that in and of itself is a bare desire to harm. Quite honestly, it's it. And it makes no sense to me because if collateral estoppel is inapplicable, that means that the orders and the judgments made in the comp courts, right, are final. And honestly, it it doesn't give any finality, any due process to one side of the of of the table. And so I'm sort of mixed on this because part of me feels that if this got to the courts, if, if, if a legislative mandate saying that there's no such thing as collateral estoppel got to the courts, it would be overruled because that's a, that's a court-mandated concept. Anyway. Yeah, so this is, this is the equivalent of just like a legislative declaration that um, some form of legal doctrine is wholly inapplicable. Like it, it's the equivalent of saying, you know, there is no such thing as the coming and going defense anymore. Sorry, see you later. But, um, you know, reading between the lines here, Mr. O'Donnell, am I hearing that you would challenge the constitutionality of this legislation if given the opportunity? I mean, I, I would <laughs> at, a, at a state at a state level. I mean, it's the idea is that, you know, a full and fair and final determination is the due process right of anybody before an adjudicator. Right. That's that is that's essentially the Constitution here. And if collateral estoppels on the chopping block just generally, right, then you get cases like this, right, where, of course, the courts, you know, say collateral estoppel, uh, uh, you know, disappeared, say it was on the chopping block, and this similarly situated instance wound up before the appellate division, they wouldn't be able to use collateral estoppel as a justification for jurisdiction before the board. They would have to conjure up its own, its own way to do that, its own logic, or it would, it would honestly establish the case it right. would bar the claimant from, right. from now, pursuing in different courts. Now, Christian, um, you know, we're always going to look for the silver lining, even even when we're constantly under siege by very claimant-friendly legislation and case law. Um, but to the extent that there's any silver lining, and, and let me know whether you agree with this assertion, you know, how often do we see the board and the third department finding any any excuse at all to establish a case and claim that there is a nexus and yeah we'll have these we'll have these intentional assault cases and we'll argue you know this is motivated by personal animus it has nothing to do uh with uh, with their jobs it's solely a personal dispute right, right that's, and how yeah. many times how many times do we get shot down on that argument so every single time every single time yes. it's, it's it's a it's, it's, it's almost an impossible defense to to raise if you're doing that alone, right? When we tell and clients that you have yeah. that defense, we're saying, do you got anything else? <laughs> because we, if this is it, uh, you know, we'll do our best. But uh, the fact that uh, we would just be going that makes it so difficult because, I, and, and the court really discusses it, right? So long as there is any nexus, however slender, between the motivation for the assault and the employment, then there's going to be a compensability finding. Uh, it's it's going to require something like this, where the claimant is asking, "Hey, don't establish this." That's that's the craziness of uh, this defense that you can't win unless the claimant helps you. <laughs> yeah, and and you'll note in the language after they cite that that um, 
that blurb about, uh, you know, so long as there is any nexus, however slender, the very next sentence in this decision is here, however, such nexus is lacking. So even though the board established the claim, the really remarkable thing here is that the third department, you know, reneges on it. And and there's one thing I do want to touch on um, briefly, and apologies if this is something of a shameless plug for a civil practice, but you know, a couple months ago, um, we prevailed on a summary judgment motion on the issue of uh, comp exclusivity uh, in a very high exposure uh, general liability case. Uh, and it included making a tenuous argument of general special employment. Uh, you can check out the webinar for details. But one of the interesting things. Humble brag. Yeah. <laughs> one of the interesting things I came across um, in litigating that case was this concept that, you know, an intentional assault doesn't necessarily remove something from the protections of the workers' comp law. There's a line of cases, um, Orzachowski, Legault, uh, there's a, a Werner versus State. There's this whole line of cases that say, sorry, claimant, the moment you accept workers' comp benefits, right, the moment you accept the benefits, and we talked at the start of this podcast about maybe a strategic move by the carrier trying to accept the case and establish it, the moment the claimant accepts, accepts comp, he is elected one of two exclusive remedies, uh, and there can be no further suit against a coworker, the employer, or the carrier. So really, the, the, to touch on your point, Christian, the fascinating thing about this is that you're right. You know, if the claimant had even accepted one week of indemnity benefits, you know, all of a sudden the employer is out from any sort of civil action thanks to 11 and 29.6. But the claimant actually is making the argument here, don't do that to me, board. This totally isn't work-related. That's It's just such a flip-flop of what we normally see. It's just really quite interesting. Yeah, and just to get back right to the fact pattern, right? Because we're, we're talking about a lot of legal theory here, and, and I know there's going to be some people listening that, uh, you know, are kind of – not, I don't want to say they're behind, but it is hard to keep up with with all the legalese, right? So we uh, we still have right a uh, and the appellate division goes out of their way to say the attack was perpetrated by an individual who was not employed by the hospital at the time of the attack and had not worked there for over two years, was not and never was Temperio's coworker, did not know Temperio, and provided no reason for the attack prior to taking his own life. Nor did Temperio know the attacker, and there's no evidence the attack was based on an employment-related animus between the two individuals, or that the attack had any nexus to Temperio's employment or performance of his job duties. And, you know, I, I, if we can almost just take a step back and talk about one of those sentences there, uh, there, was, there was no reason for, for the attack prior to taking his own life. Are, are we expecting uh, Dr. Bello to, uh, you know, write a suicide note and explain that this is a work-related uh, assault? I, I no. absolutely agree with, with the line of thinking that you have, Christian. The idea here is that there's an entire first page of this opinion that links together someone who had uh, dressed up as a doctor, had access to the building, walked in, Right. And, you know, essentially committed these heinous acts and the court, you know, notwithstanding the, the, you know, the first and second paragraphs of the opinion says that a nexus is lacking, however slender. Right. I, it's, I, I, I shake my head. I sigh because 
however slender means however slender, right? In order to link together, what does the court want? Does it, do they want a rational uh, motivation as articulated by Bellow himself? I mean, it's it, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And Addison, I'll, I'll take it a step further. You know, if, if the court's going to go and say, um, you know, that there is no evidence that these two had any sort of relationship, um, Temperio and Bellow, right? There's no evidence of any sort of um, personal animosity between the two. Well, doesn't that go to the argument that it actually is work-related? Aren't we normally Ooh, trying to argue exactly that right. there is that there is personal animosity? That's like, exactly right. When we're trying to get these cases disallowed, so it's really Other, otherwise Bella would have went to a different hospital. Right, right. Exactly. right. No, it's a great point. Like otherwise, they started. They started off the opinion saying that he resigned because he was accused or uh, of yep. sexual, sexual harassment, harassment of a coworker. Yep. So he puts on. Uh, you know, his doctor coat, Yep. he's got a badge, he walks in, you know, he's not walking in to a hospital in New Jersey, right? Or Grand Central Station or right anywhere, anywhere where there's people, right? Right. It's, there is a link, however slender. Oh, however slender. And Bring it, it back. Exactly. And it, it bothers me. Now, there is something I want to say. This case got reversed at the appellate division level. So. Right. So good point. So we, we, I don't know if we actually, uh, Delineate or, or talked about the the opinion of the workers' comp, uh, the the appellate division, the right? Appellate so division. they reversed, saying what? They reversed and they said that this case is you know not compensable; it is disallowed. I do want to note here, right? Uh, the carrier here filed a FROI, noting that the claimant uh, or the uh, yes, the claimant uh, underwent emergency surgery, right? So we have the cost of the medical, we have the cost of the treatment. Um, now it's a decedent, right? So, so there's not necessarily any indemnity that I could see right now. You know, there's no survivors and no estate that's pretty, you know, uh, that's developed here, but who pays for that emergency surgery? The carrier paid for it. So now the carrier has a viable claim to go to the state, to go to the New York workers compensation board through the section 151 fund and say fund. You made an error in administering the law. Pay me back. Oh, 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 I didn't see where you were going with that. I thought you were going with advanced payment of compensation. I paid a medical sure. bill, so it's but, but it's I'll a take compensable it, claim. And an uh, advanced payment of compensation only uh, can be overruled uh, through a no causal relationship argument, right? Which they they go into detail here. They cite Section Twenty One presumptions, but they also go into the causal relationship argument immediately. They, you know. So Addison, I'll I'll take it a step further. You know, you know, Christian's going with advance payment of comp. He thinks that's where you're going. You know, you're going with reimburse us because of this error exactly. of law. You know, you know where my mind goes. Section twenty nine, right? Because yeah. um, nothing in section twenty nine is predicated upon compensability of the claim. If you pay voluntarily and then the claim is ultimately disallowed, you still retain a right of reimbursement as to those benefits. Uh, and to take it even one step further beyond that, an employer who is sued for an intentional wrong, that actually the workers comp carrier is permitted uh, a right of reimbursement against that intentional wrong suit. Uh, even though it's their insured, you can't subrogate against them because your policy says you can. But if the claimant recovers against the employer for an intentional wrong, the carrier has a Section 29 right of reimbursement on what it's paid. Again, nothing in Section 29 
is predicated upon compensability. How many people are listening to this podcast going, those, those lawyer nerds? I know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've, you bring that up, but you realize we still haven't touched on the causes of action, which I did say to file away in our Absolutely. caps for later. I was just going to say, right. what, let's, about, let's, what about the let's, negligence? Let's take, let's take the cap that's in the corner of the room uh, with uh, Chris Major's little notes. Uh, let's unravel them. And uh, what, what do you want to talk about there, Chris? Okay, so... Uh, I will make this brief because I feel like I've been monopolizing a lot of the discussion, but you can tell I'm very passionate about what I do here, right? So um, we have three causes of action, negligence, negligent infliction of emotional distress, and negligent hiring, retention, training, and supervision. So we now have the third department, right, saying this isn't a comp claim. So, you know, if you're writing a comp policy and it simultaneously includes the part A and part B, the part B employer's liability, you're going, well, shoot, we just lost the protections of the workers' comp law to limit our exposure, and now it goes into civil court. Well, now what, what happens next for our Part B policy? To what extent is that triggered at all? What, how might we still be liable to pay on this case? And the answer is, is quite nuanced because um, technically – this negligence claim based on an intentional wrong is going to trigger a duty to defend. But every single policy uh, for Part B coverage in can, includes what they call exclusion C5, which excludes um, you know, bodily injury that is intentionally caused or aggravated by the insured. So you still have to show up and defend, but you may not have to indemnify if you can get a declaratory judgment on the C5 exclusion. So there is still hope for the Part B policy, but to take it even further than that, Negligent hiring, retention, training, and supervision, and negligent infliction of emotional distress, those are not bodily injury. Those would not fall under Part B. So what you're going to find happening here is that the employer's uh, employment practices liability insurance, EPLI, is going to be triggered here. And then you're going to have a joint defense, right? You're going to have two carriers sharing in defense costs. One on the negligence claim, which triggers the Part B, but might be excluded for indemnification purposes, uh, and the other on the infliction of emotional distress and negligent hiring retention claim, which is an employment practices liability claim. So, you know, it, uh, my mind is just spinning with the potential civil implications just based on the various causes of action alleged. You know, that's that's how much these things can just branch off into tangents, you know? Yeah, there's there's not much more uh, that I like than uh, you know Chris Major citing legal statutes and uh, Addison O'Donnell talking about legal theory. Uh, th this has been quite quite the theater for me uh, to get a front row seat. But uh, you know we have we have a we have a reversal right. It's it's going to be remanded to the board to formally disallow the claim, or maybe the board will issue a decision uh, that will comply with uh, the appellate division's decision. And I guess this matter is put to bed. What, what do you guys think? Well, let me ask you gentlemen uh, a series of questions. Do you agree that there is a duty between the hospital and the decedent, right, uh, where the hospital had a duty to secure the facilities and, uh, you know, so that the decedent who would have been alive uh, would have been okay, would have been safe? Absolutely. Chris, do you agree? <laughs> that's that's an interesting question because ah. um, because uh, 
if you're talking about the general duty owed to keep uh, premises reasonably safe from dangerous conditions, correct? Yeah, that's 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 right. a component of your average negligence claim. So we agree but, on this. We agree on this. But well, but but also, you know, the negligence turns on foreseeability, right? Well, well so I just how foreseeable start. is it that a guy shows up with a juice container filled with gas I, and an AR-15 years after his termination? But you know agree, what I mean? We so, agree that there is a duty. Right. All right. Correct. Now, did, did the hospital uh, have a duty to report Henry Bellows' sexual harassment allegation to the authorities? Ooh, uh... Hmm. That's a tough uh, one. Yeah, I think that that might be too smart of a question so for the, me. The I don't I don't usually say that, but cuz here's what here's what I think you're getting at. Um well, if you agree, if you say yes, then the nexus is not slender. The nexus between what the duty that the hospital owed to the claimant and the duty that the hospital might have owed to the perpetrator then how can you say that there is a, a no slender nexus, that there's no nexus whatsoever to have this case compensable? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying there. It's, it's, more, it's more making the nexus viable, yes. right? It, it's, uh, it, then the slenderness of the nexus is it, it, there must be a nexus because there is a duty. Right, there's right. A, and, but again, collateral estoppel. In one case, maybe duty is proven, but it cannot be. You know, uh, it cannot be uh, used in the other case. And this is this is the hole that they want to fill. And, you know, I'm, now, just, I'm mad at that slender, that slender uh, finding there. I have one question for a resident workers comp litigation guru, Christian Cson, who will who will try any issue at all just for the sake of creating havoc. I don't know. And Addison sometimes tells me that I, I, I've, I've been getting a little soft in my old age. She settled too much. <laughs> Addison, Addison had to see some cases that we worked in litigation go to settlements and he thinks I'm getting soft. I just want everybody <laughs> out there listening to know that that's not true. So yeah, thank you, Chris. I, thank I you for that. I have never in my life heard anyone describe you as soft but um there you go here's here's an interesting question you know Al, addison's talking about this uh slender nexus right and we talked about how difficult it is to succeed on this defense that you know the injury was not work-related because it was motivated by personal animus of some sort to what extent if at all christian do you see this decision impacting the viability of that defense when we raise it and could you find yourself citing to this case when you know you're writing your memo after trial saying that this was mo that this accident was motivated by personal animosity do you think do you think you might be arguing this decision at all i think you have to try of course but i, I actually don't think it changes the practicality of a workers compensation law judge's decision making process you know what we have here is you know what we all believe to have some uh, nexus, and in some cases more than a slender nexus, right? Uh, and the appellate division almost like leads us down that road, right? They, they give us very many uh, facts to kind of make us think that the foreshadowing is actually that there is a nexus, that there is something compensable in the work-related arena. So from what you're getting, we, we really talk about personal animus between two co-workers where we say, uh, you know, oh, um, you... You uh, you hit on my wife at uh, you know at at my house the other night, 
and now uh, I'm, I'm going to assault you and uh, we're on work premises, right? And then when we go litigate that, that case, Chris, right, we, we're talking about the fact that there is a personal animus between uh, these two coworkers and the claimant's attorney is going in there and saying, no, uh, they were also talking about, uh, you know, the fact that one shift uh, ended too early and the other one right. started too late. And there's some thing that's in there that a, that a workers' compensation law judge will actually find credible, right? Mm-hmm. So when they're going to take that, however slender nexus, if they can say anything, about work and we can't disprove if we can't disprove that then those cases are going to be established but i i i am kind of thinking in that mode chris because they're kind of using prior case law to find what the claimant wants right and so how often does that happen to us on the employer side where 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 we're asking for something and we we pull out all the case law all the statutes but if the claimant doesn't want it, that's that's where I was going to before, right? They're they're doing this, they're using this case almost as a model where it's like this defense can only work if the claimant wants it to. Right. It's insane. And and that's that you know at the appellate division level for workers' compensation claims, the workers' compensation board acts as a party, right? That can and has and does submit briefs defending its decision. And so the Workers' Compensation Board is defending the decision to render this case compensable, and then the board itself gets reversed. It's with it's, the assist of the carrier. With the assist <laughs> of the of the carrier. I mean, it's it's actually once in a generation, dare I say, where these arguments are forwarded, and I don't expect another case like this to come out in another generation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so wild that. I felt motivated to message you before 6.30 in the morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and to, to, to see what what this case means to you. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'll bet you regret messaging me. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. I was actually thinking that uh, we would talk about just the incredulousness of the juxtaposed positions. And it was actually you, Addison, that said, well, there's so much civil issues so so many civil issues that are uh, intertwined with this let's get chris major and make this podcast even longer and i was like yes <laughs> let's do it and then we walk across we, we have our microphones and our laptops and greg lois himself is like no 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 let's get you basically like stadium seating let's give you the best equipment and uh you know making it a, a better production than what i usually have uh in my in my office with my one uh one microphone and here we are here we are. Uh, guys, I, I think that can put a ribbon on it. Uh, I know that if we could, and we probably might, you know, to be honest, we, we might just talk about this case for a much longer time, but I think we've uh, cleared up the issues for our listeners here today. Uh, so for Chris Major and Addison O'Donnell, and, and a shout out also to our, our friends here in the office that really set us up, Greg Lois, Lauren Rella, Kendrick Castro, John Grayson, This is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.